We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Wouldn't it be great if you could live a Christian life totally free of conflict? Wouldn't that be amazing? I mean, we would sign up for that life. We would sign up for the conflict-free life, free from struggle, free from any sort of battle. The thing is, God wants us to realize that until he comes again to fully establish the kingdom, there will be a battle. There will always be a battle. Right now, you are in the thick of many battles. Right now, I am in the thick of many battles. Number one, we battle our own sinful desires and nature, right? Paul talks about this. The writers in the New Testament talk about the war inside. We have that battle waging on the inside of us. We struggle with the world that is under the sway of the wicked one. We war, as I read that verse in the opening, against spiritual darkness, against principalities and powers. The, the writers of the Bible call them the spiritual hosts in heavenly places of darkness. But God wants us to be victorious. God has not called us to defeat. He's called us to victory in him. We're to be victorious, and he wants us walking in victory. The Bible declares that those who are in Christ are not only conquerors, but you are more than a conqueror. You're greater than a conqueror. There's a conqueror, and then there's the Christian who's more than a conqueror in Christ. Amen? question is that in the midst of the temporal world of conflict, tribulation, and battle, how do we live in victory? How do we live in victory when the world or our world seems to be closing in around us? Today we're going to look once again into John 16, and Jesus is continuing to provide answers to all these types of questions. Earlier in the last couple of weeks, we've talked about how Jesus was comforting the disciples and he was saying, look, I know you're troubled because I told you I'm going away, but I'm going away and it's to your benefit that I go away because when I go away, I'm going to send the helper. I'm going to send the comforter. I'm going to send my spirit and he's going to come alongside you. He's going to convict you, convince you of your need of a savior. He's going to come and he's going to bring you, guide you into truth. He's going to do all these things things that you are so desperately in need of. And so he's told them of his departure, and, and this has brought tremendous, a tremendous amount of trouble to the hearts of the disciples. He was going away. Actually, he was going away twice, really, um, which seems to fit like the biblical pattern because there's always like this and then this again, you know? And so he was going away to the cross, but then he was coming back for a little bit, and then he was going away again, and he's still away. But thank God he sent the Spirit. But what we look at today in our text is Jesus giving us the keys to victory in our lives, amen? 
The key to victory is found in continuing in the love and faith in Jesus, even when that love and faith that we have in Christ is being tested. So we're gonna look at this passage and see the keys to victory in Jesus in the face of every battle. First, if you're taking notes with me this morning, the first key to victory is knowing God loves you. God loves you. Let's pick it up, John 16, verse 25. It says this. I have said these things to you in figures of speech, and the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. When you think of the keys to victory in the Christian life, victory in Jesus, one important key is to remember that God loves you. Well, you say, well, wow, that's a simple concept. I mean, that's, I mean, can we get it broken down any more simple than that? I mean, it, it, it's very, a very simple concept. And the, in the midst of battle, in the midst of struggle and tribulation in our lives, it's that type of message oftentimes that we need to hear because we're looking into the face of the battle, we're looking into the face of whatever enemy it is that might be coming against us, and we're looking at that, we're losing sight of our Savior, and we need to be reminded God loves us. God loves us. We need, to, we need this rem reminder of the love of God. Jesus is continuing to comfort the disciples here in this passage in the light of the news that he was going to depart from him. And of course, they've been greatly troubled by this, so much so that they're just, I mean, really the mood in the room was, you know, it just, it probably went from somewhat of a festive atmosphere celebrating Passover. Of course, this is the upper room discourse, right? Um, starting in John 3, 13 and going all the way to 16. And so he's, he's delivering this, he's celebrating Passover with them, and then he gets to this whole idea that I'm going away, I'm going away, you can't come with me, all this stuff. And, uh, well, no, we're going to go with you. No, you can't go. You can't go where I'm going, I have to go alone. He had to go to the cross. You know, no one could go to the cross with him or for him or on his behalf. He went away on his own. So the mood went from probably somewhat of a celebration, somewhat of a joyous time to that of a very somber time, so much so that you could almost see the disciples kind of downcast in their, in their disposition. So he's wanting to, 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 to fill their hearts once again with hope and love and, and joy and the expectation of hope that the Spirit is going to, 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 tell, to, to come to them. So he, he has told them that they will experience a transformation, that they're going to go through a, a time where it's going to seem dark, it's going to seem like a travail. And in the earlier passage that I did not read, in between the passage, the last passage that we looked at and, and the passage that we just began in today, he was talking about, he's comparing 
this travail that's going to come, like kind of like the, a, a childbirth. And, and the idea is that, you know, you, you know, thank God, you know, sometimes you thank God, you know, thank God for women and thank God, like I'm not one of them that had to go through all that, amen? You know, that whole childbirthing process, I've witnessed it three times. Got, I got a front row seat, I got a box seat to the whole thing, and it was, it was, wow, oh man. Wow, an incredible thing. But thank God that that travail only lasted a, a, a short time, and then there was joy, right? So there was this, oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness. And then it was like, oh, the joy of seeing those little babies one by one through the years come into the world. And so there's this joy, and God brings that joy into our lives after we go through the, tra the, the travail, the trial, the struggle, the, the battle. He brings us into those victories and he wants us to realize this process and so that we can continue to walk in victory even in the face of the next battle that's gonna come. Because there's always gonna be another battle. There's always gonna be another struggle. And so we've gotta realize these principles. So you can feel there's, you've got a couple options. You can feel during the battle. You can feel alone. You can feel empty. You can feel in despair. You can allow yourself to go through all of those things. Or you can realize in the midst of it that God loves you so much that he is there with you that he's wanting to continue to pour his love into your life. He's continuing to want to manifest his presence in your life even in the face of that situation. And this principle is seen even in the very first miracle of Jesus. If you go all the way back to the beginning of the gospel of John, we're, we're looking at John 16 today, but if you go all the way back to John chapter 2, Jesus performs what is, what is known as his very first miracle, and that's when he showed up at the wedding at Cana. Remember that? Showed up at a wet, the wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the, a wedding back then was a, an amazing, amazing feast. And one of the the faux pas, one of the no-nos, was for you to ever run out of wine at a wedding feast. And for whatever reason, the preparations, the, the, you know, the, the wedding planner, you know, they got, their, you got their notes crossed or something, and it didn't go great, and they ran out of, of wine at the wedding. And so they're looking to Jesus and saying, you know, Jesus, even Jesus' mother is saying, you know, son, do something, do something. And of course, she knew, she knew from the, the night that, Gabriel came and told her who she was going to give birth to. She had all those things in her heart. In the night that he was uh, born in Bethlehem, she knew all the amazing things that had happened. And so she knew what was happening. So on this occasion, she turns to her son and do something, son. And she said, no, not right now, mom, not right now. And then they kept, they continued to press upon him. And so he tells the attendants, he says, look at these uh, jars, Look at these jars, these large jars that would contain water. They were all empty. They were all empty. And what this kind of pictures, what it, what it kind of signifies is the, the emptiness that life can be without Jesus, without the Spirit, without the joy of the Lord. Amen? And so what he tells, Mary tells the attendants, he says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. 
Whatever he tells you to do, do it. Good advice from Jesus' mom. Amen? Whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. Just write that down. Put it on a bumper sticker. Hashtag it. And so what did he tell them to do? He says, I want you to fill these jars up with water. They fill up these large, large jars with water, and then they began to draw from those jars. So it was filled. They were empty. They were filled with water. And then it was turned into wine. And so it's a picture of the filling of the Spirit and the Spirit bringing the joy and and the presence of of, of God into our lives. And though even in the face of whatever situation can, can come, we have this type of life. We have this type of opportunity in our lives. Amen? Our lives in Christ, though once empty, are filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit and the joy that comes from the presence of God in our lives. And Christian, don't you ever forget it. In fact, be reminded, if you're, if you're in the thick of battle right now, if you're in the thick of trial, if, if, if you don't know what's going to happen next, I want to remind you right now that you have, Christian, you have the Spirit living upon, in, on the inside of you and let the, 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 the living water flow through you this morning. Jesus told the woman at the well, out of your inmost being will flow rivers of living water. And not only is it a river of living water, it's the new wine of the Spirit, Amen. It's the new wine of the Spirit, and so you have the joy of the Lord. You have the joy of the Lord, and that's what the kingdom of God is all about. The kingdom of God is about peace and righteousness and joy in the Holy Spirit. Amen? And so this is so important. Jesus continues to encourage his disciples by telling them that the Father loves them. The Father loves them. Now look at that verse real quick. I want to bring you down to that. He says, I want to, I no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Jesus is going to tell us plainly about the Father today on Father's Day. Amen? I'm going to tell you plainly about the Father. You want to, you want some information about the Father? Well, listen up. I'm going to tell you. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that, that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. So what is Jesus saying? The Father loves you. And, he's, and, he, and, he's lo- and, and that love is an evidence of the reality that you have responded to the love of the Father. You have loved God back. You have responded to him. You have recognized him. They had already told him, look, you're, 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 you're the Messiah. You're the one that, you're, you're the one. And, and, and so the, 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 the Father's love in our lives becomes, um, is, is what brings about our love in return to him. We, we didn't love God on our own. We love because, because, there's, because God the Father has love. Even Jesus earlier told this idea that he loved, he loved because the Father loved him. So there's always a pattern. The love flows from the Father to the Son to us people and then back. Okay? So you see this pattern that exists so we love God because he first loved us, right? And so he's saying, the Father loves you. 
You have loved him. You have responded to me. You have loved me. And I'm telling you that the Father loves you. The Father loves you. This is so important. This is so important. He's no longer going to speak to them in figurative language. He's going to speak to them plainly. And that plain truth is that the Father loves them and recognizes their love for Jesus and their faith in him. The question is, do you love Jesus? This morning, do you have faith in Christ? Are you, are you, are you holding fast to the truth that you believed in? When we find ourselves in a battle or in a struggle, one of the things that we do is, uh, I mean, well, I don't know if you're like this, but this is what I do. We, we, we psychologize, we philosophize quite a bit in our minds. We try to think it through and arrive at conclusions that hopefully make us feel better. We, 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 we psychoanalyze the situation. One of the thoughts that we might come to and perhaps you've been there. I mean, you are beaten down in the battle. You are, the battle is just storming over you. And one of the things that we come to sometimes is I don't care anymore. I just, I just, I just don't care. I don't care. Right? Don't nod. Oh, no, no, you can nod. I see all these nodding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I understand. I understand. You're like me. I've been there. I don't care anymore. If God was here, if God cared, I wouldn't be in this situation, so I don't care anymore. This is one of the things that we, one of the ideas, one of the thoughts that we can come to. Another is that I'll just act like a child. God doesn't care, so I guess he doesn't care what I do. So I'm just going to go and do it. Do whatever I want. All these types of things are not the way to go. Amen? They're not the correct things. But in the midst of those thoughts, there is one thought that pops up. Where is God in all of this? Where is God in the struggle? Where is God in the battle? If God loves me, why didn't he spare me from this battle, this struggle? And let me just welcome you to the voicing the age-old question. The age-old question. Why? Why God? Why God? Let me tell you this morning that God is not afraid of that question. God is not afraid of that question so much so that Jesus asked the same question on the cross. What's that? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so this is the age-old question. It's being asked today. Where is God in all of it? Where is God in my life? And let me phrase it this way this morning. If God loves me, Jesus is telling the disciples, God loves you. The Father loves you. Let me tell you, let me speak plainly to you about the Father. He loves you. If God loves me, then why then the hardship? If God loves me, why then the hardship? And I've got a couple answers for you on that. 
a couple biblical answers that will encourage you. The hardship, number one, the hardship provides an opportunity for the gospel. What's that? The hardship in your life and in the world, in any circumstance, provides an, a, an opportunity for the gospel. When Jesus asked the question, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's literally hanging on the cross. He's literally in the midst of fulfilling the will of the Father, the plan that was established from the beginning of time, from the foundation of the world. Revelation 13 says he's the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. He's literally hanging on the cross, and in the moment that he is literally accomplishing the work of redemption, accomplishing the work that is, that is the timeless work of God that has effects on into eternity forever, he's asking this question. The answer to the question is literally where he is. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cross, the work of the cross God wants to come into the center of your situation. You might feel like, you might say, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus wants to remind you of the cross and the provision of the cross right now. And what he accomplished on that cross. That he is, he is, he, he is bringing healing into your life. He's bringing every good thing into your life. He's bringing his grace and his love and his mercy and his divine provision into your life. And so when we look to the face of the battle and we want to get to that moment of wondering where Jesus is, wondering where God is in all of it, God loves you so much that he sent his son to the cross so that his work can ultimately be done in your life. So the hardship provides an opportunity for the, for the gospel. Number two, the hardship provides discipline. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 12, verse 7. We'll throw it up on the screen for you. He says this, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? What's that? The writer of Hebrews is telling us that we need to understand the right perspective when it comes to the hardship that we endure as believers. That we don't just go blindly through this life and hardship comes and we just, you know, we're out here all alone. No, the hardship, he says, endure hardship is discipline. When the hardship comes, the perspective of the Christian is to look into and to ask, what, Lord, are you teaching me? What is it that you're refining in me? Where is it that you're sanctifying me and setting me apart? What is it in my life that you want to, to purge out of me? What is it that you want to pour into me? God, what are you doing in my life? He says, endure hardship as discipline, for God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? A good, good father disciplines his sons. A good, good father brings discipline to his sons and, 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 and brings the truth to bear upon his children. And that's what God wants to do in your life. And no 
you go on and read that section in Hebrews 12, no discipline seems pleasant at the time. What, what do you mean? Chastisement. You know, correction. Raise your hand if you like to be corrected. <laughs> no one signs up for correction. No one signs up, oh, just correct me. You know, correct me. In fact, we bristle up. You know? You know, honey, you left your shoes in the middle of the floor. You left your socks. They didn't make it into the basket. Right? <laughs> this is the correction. Right? Socks have to go from here into the basket like basketball, right? Put the sock into the laundry, right? No, no correction, no, none of that seems pleasant at the time. But later on, it brings about a harvest of righteousness in our lives. So, what, so you're looking at the hardship, you're looking at the trouble, you're looking at the tribulation. God is bringing discipline in your life and you need to look, you need to have a long view because you, you're looking at the here and now and God wants you to look down the road. There's a harvest coming. You're gonna be sitting there going, oh, look at this, look at this, isn't this wonderful? But right now, you're downcast in your spirit. You're going through the trial and the tribulation. Endure hardship as discipline, for God is treating you as sons. And he actually says, and not as illegitimate children. You read that passage in Hebrews 12. It's actually stronger in the original language. Amen? You know what I'm talking about. For in the midst of whatever you are going through, please know that God loves you and that he's working in your life. Amen? Faith in Christ is the key. Let's go back to the text, verse 29. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. And his disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, do you now believe? The disciples declared that, here that Jesus is no longer speaking to them in figurative language. Jesus, you're going to speak to us plainly. What made them come to this conclusion. Jesus had just told them that the Father himself has recognized their love and belief in Jesus. These words inspired faith. They heard the, the love of God spoken. Jesus spoke the love of the Father over them. And they said, we understand. You're not speaking to us in figurative language. You're speaking to us plainly. We believe, this is why we believe, this is why we know you know all these things. This is why we understand that you're from God. We, 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 man, think about these statements. They're, 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 now, they're now rising up in faith because the love of God has been spoken over them. The love of the Father. It is interesting when we, when we focus on the battle, the struggle, or the hardship, it decreases our faith. 
when you focus on the, the, the hardship, when you focus on the battle, the struggle, when you focus on the mountain, the size of it, 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 it your faith begins to wane a little bit. Your faith begins to decrease. You were concentrating on the problem, and it's like a giant vacuum that exists that just sucks all the faith out of us. You know what I mean? You are sitting around with your eyes and thoughts firmly planted on the mountain that is front of, in front of you, and the more you look at the mountain, the more you talk about it, the less faith you have, the less hope you have, the less victory you have. But when you look at Jesus and you talk to Jesus and you read about who he is and you begin to focus on him and you read the scriptures that he's a refuge, that he's a strong tower, that he's your son, that he's your shield, that, he, that he's got all these wonderful plans for you, that he's gonna be there, that he's never gonna leave you or forsake you. When you focus on who he is, that he is one with the Father, that all, all authority has been given to him, that, that he's bringing all things under the subjection of Christ. When you begin to look at the plan of God and what Jesus is doing in the world, you think about those things, faith begins to rise in my heart. Faith begins to rise up in my life. And this is, there's a, there's a great example of this in the scripture. I mean, there's many, the, the Bible is filled with thousands of examples of this, Amen. One of, the, one, of the, one of the clear ones is when Jesus came to them one night, the disciples were out on the Sea of Galilee in a boat, and Jesus came to them in the night walking on the water. Remember this? He comes to them walking on the water. They thought it was a ghost, and they said, oh, no, it's, it, it could be Jesus. It, it, G, Jesus, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the, on the water. Right? Peter. Peter says, you know, he's always one, he's like one of the first to speak, amen? He's like the Arnold Horshack of, of the disciples, right? Some of you don't get that reference. <laughs> he's the first to speak. Jesus, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Come. He gets out of the boat. The sea is raging, it's choppy. He, come, he, he begins to take a few steps. And, it, and the text tells us there in Matthew, when he, looked, when he looked, took his eyes off Jesus and he saw the storm and the waves, he began to sink, right? And so, you know, Jesus was the first surfer, of course, all boardless. Peter was the second surfer and had the first wipeout, right? He goes down. He goes down. Jesus picks him up out of the water. Now, the, the, the imagery of Jesus conquering the water, you have to understand the imagery of the water in the Old Testament, the sea, the raging of the sea. The, the, the idea of the sea was, was trouble. The idea of the sea was trouble. And so when Jesus comes to them walking on the top of the raging sea, he's literally declaring to them, I'm, I'm in charge. I'm in control. I, 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 I'm not only just in charge on the land, I'm in charge of the raging sea. I I, my power is over all the things. So when you look at the Old Testament, when you see this, you read the Psalms and all those things and you see this idea of the raging of the sea and the, the foaming of the sea. 
This is, this is all the understanding of the Hebrew who would, who would have looked at that as the, the, of, of, in a fearful way of a, 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 a picture of, of trouble and terror and even of the work of the enemy. But God has authority over it all. Amen? And so we've got to keep our, our, our eyes on Jesus and allow that faith to rise up in us. And so these guys have this declaration of faith. We believe you, Jesus. We believe in you, Jesus. We believe that you came from the Father. This declaration of faith is on par with Peter's confession of faith in Matthew 16, where he declared, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We believe you're the Christ. We believe you're from the Father. We believe you know all these things. When we're focused on Christ and who he is and what he has accomplished, it really puts everything else into context. In light of who he is, these mountains don't seem to be so big after all. These waves don't seem that great after all. There are two ways that you can look at big waves. You say, what? Yeah, there are two ways to look at it. There's one way where you get in the ocean, it's like, oh no, the big waves, oh, we, we better get out of here. And I guarantee you got a bunch of surfers over here, if they walked over here to High Tower or wherever, Sebastian down at the inlet, they saw some big waves, they're like, let's go, right? There's two ways to look at big waves, no and yes, <laughs> right? And so we wanna be those people that have faith because we're gonna be looking, even in the face of the wave, in the face of the mountain, we're going to be looking to Jesus. One last point this morning, our faith will be tested. Let's go back to the text. Verse 31, Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. And I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus responds to the disciples' confession of the faith. Do you now believe? The question isn't meant, meant to bring a discouragement. It's it's easier to have confessions of faith in moments like this. Jesus is with them. He's confirming their love. He's, he's, he's confirming their faith in him. It's really like a glorious worship service here. They're confessing, like, we believe. You, you know all these things, Jesus. You're from the Father. I mean, uh, you're, you know, it, 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 it's like a worship time. We have those times. We have those times. We call them mountaintop experiences. We, we have the, the services, the great services we're worshiping. And, 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 and it's just a love fest and, a, and faith is arisen and we're just like, you know. And then we go out into, the li into our life. We go out into the world. We begin to walk. And then the, the struggle comes. Then the, the battle comes. And a lot of times the confessions of faith are easier on the mountaintop in those moments than they are in the face of the battle. And 
this is where we need to do better to find victory in Jesus in the midst of the battle because our faith will be tested. Jesus knew that although they were having a great moment of confession of faith in him, that faith, their faith would be greatly tested within the next 24 hours. I mean, Jesus isn't even talking about something, you know, down the road in six months, down the road in six years, you're gonna have some test of the, no, no, in 24 hours, this whole thing's going down. In fact, that night, from, 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 from this conversation, they slip out from Jerusalem, from the upper room, down through the Kidron Valley, up onto the Mount of Olives. They go into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. John 17 becomes the, the, the entirety of the prayer of Jesus on the Rock of Agony. And then, of course, he's arrested. This whole thing is going down. Your faith will be tested. You'll be scattered. You'll be scattered. You'll, you'll run for shelter. You'll run for safety. Jesus knew this. The moments where we are in the desperate need of victory are not the moments of clarity and uh, in, in moments of profound faith-filled worship where, where things are all sorted out in our minds and seem to be going according to the plan. The moments where victory is needed is in the midst of the chaos when things are not going according to the plan and our minds are completely unsettled, that's where we need faith and that's where we need the love of Jesus to be realized in our lives. We need the presence and the power of the Spirit to be realized in, in our lives. Jesus tells them that the hour has come when they will be scattered. They would each run for their own safety and shelter and would leave Jesus' side. And while they were running for cover, Jesus even as they run for shelter and cover, Jesus is an example of how to be alone. What's that? Look back at the text. Indeed it has come. When you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone, yet I am not alone for the Father is with me. What's that? Jesus is an example of how to be alone. Now, we, most, most people don't like to, I mean, there are a few people that like to be alone. You know, leave me alone. <laughs> most people, we're very social people. We don't like to be alone, you know. But Jesus, he's the author and the finisher of the faith. He's the example in every which way that he can be an example of how to do this thing called walk this life in the spirit. Jesus is an example of being alone. Jesus tells them that even when I'm left alone and seemingly abandoned, I am not alone because the Father is with me. This is an example of how to weather the storm, to face the mountain or even a cross. He was going to be, he was going to actually, the next day, be nailed to a cross between two thieves stripped naked. And he knows that the Father is with him. Jesus spoke these things to the disciples so that they could have peace. Everyone can enjoy peace in the midst of peace. <laughs> it's easy. Right? 
oh, it's just peace. It's peaceful times. It's peace. It's peace and tranquility, and everything's wonderful. And what? No, it's hard to have peace in the face of chaos. Wow, this is, this is, we need this. To have peace, a peace that passes, what is the peace that passes understanding? A peace that passes understanding is the peace that can, that can be at peace in the face of the, of the chaos. A peace that you can understand is having peace when it's peaceful. Hey, man, everything's going great. Everything's going according to the plan. You know, my, my one-year plan, my five-year plan, my 10-year plan. Oh, man, it, it is going. It's unbelievable how well things are going. It's easy to have peace in peace. But to have peace in the chaos, that's what we need, and that's what we have, and that's what Jesus assures It's a true follower of Christ that can enjoy the peace of Christ in the midst of trial. As a Christian, you've come into the kingdom, right? You've come into the kingdom of God. And that kingdom is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So we're we're a part of a we're part of a place. We're part of a space. We're part of a community. We're part of a faith. We're part of a family that is about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Jesus assures, and I close with this, Jesus assures this, that in this world we will have tribulation. There will be trial. There will be hardship. There will be battle. There will be struggle. And anyone that tells you otherwise is just setting you up for failure. Jesus says here, you will have tribulation. Right? You will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Amen? Jesus, as the author and finisher of our faith, has come into the world and conquered the world. He's conquered the world. You need to know that the world is a conquered world. Did you know that this morning? You need to know that the world is a conquered world and we're friends with the one who conquered it. Amen? And he's right here with us. He's right here with us. He's the victor. He conquered the world. Now, the great thing for us is to look back in hindsight to the victory of the resurrection and know that Jesus did, in fact, conquer the world. He beat death. He conquered the grave. He conquered the world. And it's a powerful, powerful truth for the Christian. But realize that Jesus doesn't say these things after the cross. He says these things before the cross. <laughs> right? You have to, he hasn't gone to the cross yet. Be of good cheer. You will have tribulation. Be of good cheer. In this world, you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He hadn't gone, he hadn't been resurrected yet. He says these things before the cross. And so once again, Christ provides an example. We can claim victory now in Jesus' 
name over what may come. What's that, Christian? We can claim victory in Jesus' name over what may come. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Whatever may come in this life, as long as I continue in Jesus, can only affect me on a physical level and therefore only a temporal level. The Spirit is eternal. And it's in the Spirit that we can claim victory in Jesus. And these guys would go out, every one of these guys, that was still left in the room, went out and was used by God in amazing, amazing ways. And many of them went to physical deaths under persecution for their faith. But they were victorious in Jesus. Amen? Why? Because that's only temporary. The physical, this physical world, that's why I talk about all the time, the perspective of the Christian is the long view, the eternal view, the spiritual view. Amen? God cares about the physical too. And he's there with you in the midst of it. But let's not forget that we've got an amazing perspective in Christ and that he is going to accomplish his purpose and his plan in our lives. And so, victory in Jesus. I know it's a song we used to sing, victory in Jesus, right? My Savior forever. Victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. That is the cry of the, the believer. Amen? And you can have that, knowing that Jesus loves you, that faith is the key, that faith will be tested, but in the face of the testing, let your faith be sure, let your faith rest assured on the one who has overcome 